Let me pray for our children and for us who remain here. Father, we bless you for every child you have brought into this house today. Thank you for their lives. We know they are precious in your sight and that their angels always look upon the face of your Father in heaven. We pray this morning that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit to know you and to love you and to love each other well. Lord, as we remain here and sit under your word, I pray that you would give each of us your Holy Spirit in our hearts to understand it, to be humble before it and to be changed by it, Lord. We long for you. We need you to save us. We long for you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Sarah and I recently watched uh, a movie on Amazon Prime called 13 Lives. It's a prime original movie. Uh, it was recommended to us by Bishop Martin Minns. 13 Lives. I, I really recommend this movie. It's great. Um, it tells uh, the, t- the true story that happened a few years back of that uh, cave rescue in Thailand. Uh, you might remember this from the news. It was a big story. It ran for a couple of weeks. Um, and uh, it was a situation where uh, these, these soccer boys got trapped in a cave and dozens of countries came together, got involved in trying to rescue them. Uh, I remember at the time that even Elon Musk uh, pitched in. Uh, he, he designed a submarine out of spare rocket parts. It didn't work, um, but it was a nice try. Um, so the situation that the movie tells is that there was a youth soccer team in Thailand. It was mostly middle school boys, and they finished practice one day, and, and just for fun, they headed over together to visit the Tham Luang Caves, um, which is their, lo- their town's local beauty spot. Um, and it's a pretty impressive cave system. It goes several miles deep, um, and it's perfectly safe for most of the year, but then during monsoon season, it gets completely flooded and becomes uh, very dangerous. And so what happened to these poor boys is it was a fine day and they wandered into the caves and while they were inside, the monsoon season started. It started about seven weeks ahead of schedule and there was this torrential downpour and because they were underground, they didn't even realize it. And by the time they turned around to come back out of the caves again, the tunnel back out was completely flooded and they were trapped. Um, And this was a huge problem because monsoon season was set to last more than a month and they were just, they were all going to die. If they didn't drown as the waters rose, um, they would die of starvation in there or of asphyxiation when the oxygen in the caves ran out. So um, their plight uh, prompted a huge international rescue operation. Thousands of people from several countries dropped everything in their normal lives to work on this problem of getting those boys out. There were pumps and pipes, miles of piping. There were divers. They got teams of Navy SEALs. The state governor camped out uh, by the caves to coordinate the effort. And it was just an incredibly difficult problem, as the movie shows. Swimming in to where those boys were, miles deep in the caves, took about six hours in scuba gear, in turbulent water, through a confusing labyrinth of narrow tunnels ringed with sharp rocks. And one Navy SEAL from Thailand died in the process of trying to swim in. Um, But to cut a long story short, and to spoil the movie for you, if you somehow missed the news cycle, um, all 13 lives of that soccer team and their coach were eventually saved by a very brave team of British rescue divers after a terrifying ordeal, uh, thank you, uh, that lasted more than two weeks. Um, And so the scene in the movie that that made me cry when I saw it was the sheer joy of so many people when the first of the boys was brought out alive. 
There was cheering and applause and tears lining both sides of the street of family members and townspeople and aid workers, hundreds and hundreds of people who had done nothing else for two weeks than try to make this happen. They were all celebrating that just this first life had been saved. And it reminded me of the joy there is in heaven over one sinner who repents, more than over 99 who need no repentance. So those rescue workers got the boys out of a situation where they would certainly have died to one where they would live against all the odds and against hope. And isn't that just the story of the Red Sea? Only, of course, the Red Sea miracle is a much grander story on a much grander scale. But God got the people of Israel out. He rescued them. One night, they were all sure they were going to die. And the next morning, they knew that they would live. And it's such a good story that it's still being told today. And a nation of people is still drawing their whole identity from it. They say, we are the people who were rescued. We are the people who were saved. And we are still singing about it. Um, So please open your Bibles now to Exodus 14. If you're in the church Bibles, it's page 56, Exodus 14. Thank you, Bev, for telling us this whole story. Um, I want to look at it again now in detail. I want to look at this story first from the perspective of God, uh, second from the perspective of Pharaoh and his army, and then finally from the perspective of the people of Israel themselves. First, how did the Red Sea rescue look from God's own perspective? Well, in this scenario, God was the rescuer, right? He was the international aid worker. He came from a foreign country to answer a cry of distress. And God took mighty and decisive action. It was all carefully coordinated according to a subtle and intricate plan. And it was executed to perfection. Among God's own people, not a single life was lost. And among his enemies... Not a single life was spared. So after the Passover that Taylor preached for us last week, and the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn, Pharaoh of Egypt finally did let the people of Israel go. And the sons of Israel were allowed to leave Egypt with their wives and children and their livestock, and also with a good deal of plunder from the Egyptians. And after they left, God immediately took the lead. So if you flip back to chapter 13 and verse 17, Um, It says there that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God is leading them. He is taking the lead. Um, But he doesn't take them the short way up to Jerusalem, which um, was less than 200 miles if they traveled northeast. But instead, he led them southeast 200 miles into the desert towards Sinai. God's pillar of cloud and pillar of fire took them down to the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, which might have taken them about three weeks on foot with sheep and children in tow. So they were out into the middle of nowhere. Maybe you remember from geography class this part of the world, and you remember that between um, uh, Africa and Saudi Arabia, there's um, the Red Sea. It's a long, thin strip of ocean, and uh, for most of its length, it's about 120 miles wide. But in the north, up near Cairo, it splits into two fingers, what we now call the Gulf of Suez, to the west, bordering Egypt, and the Gulf of Aqaba, to the east, bordering Saudi Arabia. 
And that split in the Red Sea creates a triangle of land in between the fingers that we call the Sinai Peninsula. Um, although that's not where we now think Mount Sinai was, it's much more likely it was east of the Gulf of Aqaba, deep into Saudi Arabia. So as we think about God leading his people into this triangle of land, militarily, it's a stupid move, isn't it? There's nothing down in that triangle, and there's no way out of it, other than just to come back up north, back closer to Egypt again. And the point of all this, we learn from God's perspective, was that he would goad Pharaoh. God was setting a bear trap, as we discover at the beginning of chapter 14, because it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirot, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. So God led them this way to deliberately make his own people look stupid. He deliberately had them turn back and wander around in the desert like idiots in order that Pharaoh would see that or hear about it through his spies and his heart would grow arrogant again and he would come after them. So we look, see this here, that our God enticed the king of Egypt to his death. When Pharaoh and his entire chariot corps arrived on cue, God then set the stage for the big show. First, he dropped the curtain. Verse 19, the pillar of cloud moved between Israel and Egypt. God shielded his people from Pharaoh's view. It was like a big fog. They couldn't see anything. So uh, the command would go out to set up camp, get some rest, wait until morning. They didn't have to worry. Israel wasn't going anywhere. They were completely surrounded. They just uh, they camped down for the night. But that left God with a night to work. He blew with his east wind and parted the sea. Around midnight, the people of Israel started out on the path that he'd made. So down at the tip of the Sinai Peninsula, the Gulf of Aqaba narrows to just under 10 miles wide, still at least a four-hour journey on foot. It descends then to a depth of 3,000 feet. So crossing would be like hiking down the side of a mountain and climbing back up it on the other side. And when you were down at that lowest point in the five-mile mark in the middle, you would have a wall of water 3,000 feet high on either side of you. That's a little higher than the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, which is the tallest building in the world. And it's hard to imagine a more terrifying or awe-inspiring sight, is it? It says in the Hebrew that God split the sea. At the end of verse 21, it says the waters were divided. And that Hebrew verb there means to violently split apart. It's the verb used for an axe splitting wood. And it says God split the sea. The troops of God's army were molecules of seawater. Untold trillions of them, which God commanded against gravity to line up in rank and file. And we cannot even imagine the power it would take to divide water in this way or dream of recreating this stunt with any of our human technology, but God Almighty did in just a couple of hours. So then the children of Israel had at least a four-hour head start before the cloud lifted. The sentries sounded the alarm and Pharaoh's chariots plunged in after them. With their much greater speed, they might have caught Israel. But for one more trick that God had up his sleeve in verse 24, it says, in the morning watch, that means somewhere between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., 
the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. So the last trick was that Pharaoh's chariots got stuck. And then in their panic, the army of Egypt turned back to flee out of the sea. But before any of them made it out, Israel had finished their crossing. God released his hold on the waters and they crashed back together. A hundred million tons of seawater swamped Pharaoh and his army and not one soldier was left alive. I actually did that calculation. I added this to my notes here. Uh, 10 miles, 3,000 feet, divide by 2, 1,500, assume it's 50 feet wide, 112 million tons of water. What other war in history has ever been such a rout? On God's side, not a single life was lost. On the side of his enemies, not a single life was spared. Well might Moses sing in chapter 15, verse 3, breathlessly caught between triumph and awe, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The Red Sea rescue was God's mightiest act of the Old Testament because it combined awesome power with genius planning and inch-perfect control. God's mightiest act in the Old Testament was a rescue. And again, we see that God's mightiest act in the New Testament was also a rescue. The Red Sea rescue, as magnificent as it was, was still only the prelude to a much bigger, better, and more breathtaking plan to save the entire world from the grip of Satan by means of the spilled blood of the eternal Son of God on the cross. So we see that the two greatest works of God in history were both rescues. They are both works of salvation, and we see that our God is a saving God. The name Jesus means salvation. And the primary way God wants us to know him is that he is our Savior. And we, as a people, are defined that we are a rescued people. Our God can make a way where there seemed to be no way. Now, second, I want to look at Pharaoh and his army. And remember that they were people too, just like us. And there are many people alive today who are just like Pharaoh. Exodus 14 was written for them too, to warn them about what is coming. Pharaoh was also a man of war, a man of strength and domination, a fighter, a conqueror. He commanded a mighty army. Chariots were the battle tanks of his day and his military was loaded with them. And Pharaoh said in his heart, I am strong, I am untouchable. The world is mine for the taking, and I rule it as I please. Ten plagues and a dead son later, and Pharaoh still had no fear of God. Verse 5 of chapter 14 says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done? that we have let Israel go from serving us. So it's still all about them, isn't it? And then at the end of verse 8, there's an interesting word choice when it says, the people of Israel were going out defiantly. They were going out defiantly. That's clearly written from the perspective of Pharaoh and his servants, right? That was how the situation looked to them. Not that the people were going out happily in obedience to God. <laughs> no, they were going out in defiance of Egypt. The Hebrew behind that word is an idiom. It literally says that the people of Israel were going out with a high hand. 
It's not a very common idiom, and there's some debate about what that means. Some interpreters say that high-handed means defiant, as it can sometimes in English. Others say it means triumphant, like a hand grasping a sword. But could it mean that they went out worshipfully? Israel went out with a high hand. And any way you slice it, they were feeling good. And that made Pharaoh crazy. In his heart, he was still their enemy and therefore still God's enemy. He could not stand for his slaves to be feeling good or raising their hands for any reason. And because of this, the people of Israel were not yet safe. They were not yet really free, not while Pharaoh lived and could still come after them. Thus, it was necessary that Pharaoh and his entire army be annihilated. And Pharaoh himself is the one who proves that necessary. And I want to note from this verse, this, this, this pattern in this passage, that there can never be peace between good and evil. Never. There can never be any compromise between them. Our world is still working very hard at the negotiating table, day after day, year after year, trying to pretend that such a peace is possible, but it ain't. People fall into only two camps. You love God or you hate him. And if you don't love his son, Jesus Christ, then you hate God. Between those two camps, a great chasm has been fixed so that no peace, no compromise, and no negotiation is remotely possible. Those who choose to hate God will hunt down his people until every last one is extinguished from the earth. They will never let up. They will never say enough. Sometimes it seems that they can be reasoned with, but in the end they always trend to the attitude of Pharaoh. They see the people of God rejoicing. They change their minds and they call for their chariots. And so God, for his part, responds in kind. God is a man of war. Yes, there is mercy. Yes, there are long years of waiting for repentance. But at the end of the appointed time, all evil will be routed as Pharaoh's army was routed. And God will not leave one of his enemies alive. No, not one. If you are not God's friend this morning, then you ought to be very, very afraid of this. You ought to have nightmares about this. You ought to wake up in cold sweats because God is not at all gentle when he finishes off his enemies. One evening, the armies of Pharaoh sat down in their camps and they were feeling pretty good. Their quarry was trapped and terrified. They lit fires. They roasted meat. They opened skins of wine. Someone pulled out a guitar. There were songs. There were jokes and excitement about the day, of a day ahead. But before the sun came up again, every one of them would be a floating corpse. Before doom came, there was maybe an hour of sheer desperate terror. The kind of wet your pants panic. When you know the end is upon you, your worst nightmare has come true, your last hope is lost, and nothing remains but to scream and scream and scream at the foot of a wall of 3,000 feet of water waiting for death to claim you. Do you want to end like that? Let the pharaohs who yet live take warning. Let Putin and Kim Jong-un and Narendra Modi take warning. Let the drug barons and sex traffickers and pornographers who yet live take warning. And let the undead, selfish, lazy coward who yet lives in me take warning. 
that God is a man of war. Pharaoh shows that if we cannot be separated from our demonic idols, then we will die with them. And chapter 14 shows us God's kind of justice. He drowns the men that drowned his infant children in the Nile. This is not a call for the church to take up arms or be militant. Let me be clear. We leave justice to God. Our call is to show mercy and kindness and to warn these people that God's justice is coming. The good news is that while we yet breathe, there is yet time to repent. There is still time now to be saved. But for each one of us, that window of opportunity will close suddenly. One night, laughing, the next morning, dead. We never know when the last chance comes, when the last chance passes us by. Tell your friends. Give them this warning. God says in verses 17 and 18, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So notice in this text that it's not really racial. God isn't prioritizing one nation over another indefinitely. That God's work with Israel um, actually gave hope to Egypt too. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The demise of Pharaoh freed Egypt from his idolatrousness, and it taught the rest of Egypt the truth about Yahweh. Egypt is still included in God's rescue plan for all the nations. And notice from these same verses that the death of Pharaoh himself brought God glory. Moses' life brought God glory by his choice to follow God. Pharaoh's life brought God glory even in his opposition to God against Pharaoh's will. And the lesson is that every life, every one of our lives will bring God glory. His friends because he rescues them and his enemies because he defeats them. Either way, we don't have a choice about glorifying God. So if you're trying to be stubborn about it, please give it up. You're not hurting God you're only hurting yourself. He's going to get glory through your life anyway. And if you long to bring God glory in your heart, then take heart, friends. I can promise you that you will. Finally, now, let's look at Israel. The people of Israel were saved through the Red Sea. They were rescued. They got out. And their part in that rescue was essentially zero. Just walk. Follow the person in front. The people of Israel didn't plan it. They didn't ask for it. They didn't pray, and they didn't fight. For a lot of the time, they had no idea what was going on. Um, when the people freak out in verses 10 and 11, Moses replies, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent, or you have only to be still. And this command stands in contrast, doesn't it, to all the instructions and activity about the Passover that we heard about last week. In that case, God had a lot for them to do, but here, nothing. Just stand still. And it's, so it's not that God never asks his people to act or to work hard in his service, but it's striking, isn't it, that here, at the moment of salvation, the instruction is to do nothing. Just let God save you. There's nothing you can add, and anything you try to add is only going to subtract from the work. 
The work required in saving you is infinitely beyond you. It can only be God's work and his alone. So let no one have any misconception that he saved himself, that he was anything other than a helpless recipient of God's grace. And this is, of course, exactly the same when it comes to Jesus saving us on the cross, isn't it? We are merely recipients of God's grace and mercy. We do nothing, we add nothing. We have only to be still. Charles Spurgeon commented on this verse saying, I dare say that you will think it a very easy thing to stand still, but it is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit long experienced and much in grace. In the movie I was talking about at the beginning, 13 Lives, the rescuers faced a very similar problem. So they could go ahead and put scuba gear on a teenage boy and lead him out through the flooded tunnels. The problem was the boys themselves. They were going to freak out. The journey took hours. And long before the end, there's going to be a panic reaction. The boys would rip off their masks. They would rush to the surface in search of air, only to bang their heads on the sharp rock of the ceiling. This was the biggest problem of all. And the solution the divers finally came up with as a last resort to save the boys' lives was actually to inject them with anesthetic. They fully anesthetized the boys before they made the journey so that they would keep still and not hurt themselves. What a great illustration that is for how hard we find it to be saved, how hard we find it to contribute nothing to our own survival. Now, unfortunately, God doesn't anesthetize us. It might be nice if he did. Instead, he calls us to relax into his hands and trust him while he rescues us. It's not easy to relax in the tank of baptism and let that priest push you over backwards. It's cold and you're out of control. But then the Christian life continues as it began. The more we mature as believers in God, the more we can stand at ease in the midst of tribulation. And the peace in our hearts is the tell of the gospel. It shows how much we really understand grace. By the mighty hand of God, the people of Israel crossed over the sea. On one shore, they were still vulnerable. They were still within the reach of Pharaoh and thus still prone to fear. On the other shore, they were safe. They saw Pharaoh's army dead. They were out of reach and they sang. I want to note the difference between one shore and the other shore and see that the process of crossing was really a kind of baptism for Israel. It was a mass baptism for all the people at once. They passed through the water from death to life, from the shadow of death into the light of morning. We heard Paul saying in 1 Corinthians, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And I want us to notice that only a small amount of faith was needed to make the crossing, but a large amount of faith was produced by the crossing. Before the people cross in verses 10 through 12, they had really very little faith at all. They have a major freak out, and their faith is shown to be pitifully weak. And uh, the Presbyterian preacher Tim Keller points out that as they passed through the waters of the Red Sea, we would have found very different qualities of faith among the people of Israel. He says some of them would have gone through like this. Look at this. God's on our side. 
eat your heart out, Egyptians. The Lord is fighting for us. But then others of them would have gone through like this. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. They all walked through with completely different qualities of faith, right? But that didn't matter. They were all equally saved. And the conclusion is that we're not saved by the quality of our faith. We're saved because of the object of our faith, the Redeemer, the God who's fighting for us. But then we find in this passage that there's a huge difference between one shore and the other. So if you look at verse 30, as we conclude the story, it says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So real faith was born there at the Red Sea. That event defined the nation for centuries to come. The people saw the salvation of God and they believed in the Lord. And the result in the next chapter is singing. The result of salvation is joy and laughter and thanksgiving and song. So in closing, I want to ask you, family of God, are you singing? Where is your song? I know there's a war on and a pandemic and economic hard times, and a terrible hurricane, and we lost some of our own family members this past week. But nevertheless, where is our singing? Have we truly crossed over from death to life? The truth that we've been told is that all wars will cease, bodies will be healed, storms will be calmed, and our loved ones will be raised. We have been saved out of all of those evil things. Our God has parted the Red Sea. He has made a way where there was no way. And surely if he can do that, he can do anything. Our God has paid for our sin. He made a way where there was no way. He defeated death and Satan on the cross. The Lord has triumphed gloriously. And if we have truly crossed over from death to life, we ought to be singing. We ought to have an inconquerable joy through all the grief and the pain still singing. We are not there yet, but we can get there from here. So we take up the words of chapter 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Amen.